There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Stephen, do we have to talk about the EU? No, no. Uh, even I have reached a point. Hooray! <laughs> of kind of, you know, I'm I'm still uh, really uh, perhaps over invested in 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 the outcome. I got very uh, shirty with someone on Twitter the other day when when no. uh, uh, when they said, oh, you know, like they they, uh, they basically implied that the referendum didn't matter as much as a general election, and I uh, I became very irate. You uh, yeah. Was that did that make you more or less angry than the people who said that the West Wing? did in its early seasons have a fine attitude towards women and they didn't know what you were talking about. I think what I found more annoying about the so I I've, I've been rewatching the West Wing with uh with my partner and also because I've been listening to this excellent rewatching the West Wing podcast. Well, I just started listening to that this morning. I went out for a run this morning and I dropped that in because, you know, I I'm really proud of myself and I started listening to it and it is really good, but I'm worried that because Joshua Malina is like a friend of Aaron Sorkin's that he's going to pull his punches slightly in the kind of he does not pull his punches oh, really? at all. Like, yeah, like it's it, it's good, but he doesn't pull. His... But I think what I found maddening about it is I was just like, still a great show, but the fact that the women in the Sorkin era are written as incompetent does leave a sour taste. And my replies uh, fit into two groups: people who are also rewatching it, who are just like, yeah, it has not aged well. Great show, but has not aged well. And people who weren't rewatching it, who were like, but what about? It's just like, no, no, no. You thought it was okay at the you time. You thought it was fine at the time. And also, it's one of those things where a classic example of, you know, lots of shows have this problem. It doesn't rewatch uh, as well if you are watching it episode by episode. Because you suddenly, you know, so if you're not letting it breathe, as it were. Because, so if you cram a box set down in one go, yeah. you begin to notice, yeah, I can see that that's an issue. I think it's really, I think I, one of the things that Joshua Malina said in the first episode of the West Wing podcast, which I thought was interesting, was that the first episode goes out during when Clinton is still president. I think that's really fascinating because it did turn into, I think, and it, this is this is to cantily, but back to British politics, I think it ruined a generation of British politicians and sort of spads because it was such a liberal wish fulfillment under about the, the you know, I think there's a real problem in politics when you don't have an enemy that's kind of like really straightforwardly evil and, and everyone can agree that they're, you know, like ISIS, everyone can agree in the Middle East that ISIS are bad. Like, you know, even Russia are kind of, yeah, ooh, ISIS, terrible. Although Mark Rylance, uh, 
Does he pro-ISIS? He's not. He says they have some strong points and we need to... He also thinks that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare, so maybe I'm just putting it out there that great actor, maybe... Actually, on the other subject of people who, you know, who I, you know, who I, I used to adore, but it turns out have appalling opinions, Emma Thompson, right? Emma Thompson, who has been leading the charge in her campaign against Tesco's in her, uh, in, in her bit of Hampton, wrote a letter in which she said that the people who work there neither know or care to know the local inhabitants. And it's like, it's like, well, I mean, some of the people who work there, it's just a really horrible generalisation about everyone who works on a shop floor in Tesco's. Yeah, I used to live, and I now still live in a new place that's near a Tesco. And actually, do you know what? It's quite hard, like... What do you want them to do? They're working behind a till eight, nine hours a day. You know, this isn't sort of Mary Poppins. It's not like they're sort of skipping around. They're doing kind of repetitive, unskilled work. I just, you know, what does she want to be? Also, if you've got a queue nine deep behind you, this is not the time to start asking Emma Thompson about, like, oh, what, you know, what roles have you been in lately? Let's talk me about your begonias, how they're getting on. Because you've got 14 people standing behind, baying, desperately wanting to buy, you know, late night yeah. bread and eggs. But it was very upsetting because obviously I I love Emma Thompson and think she should be Britain's queen. But um, she's made some terrible decisions. I tried to watch that romantic comedy that she's in with Pierce Brosnan where they pay a divorced couple and he loses their whole pension fund and they try and get it back. And I actually had to stop, even though, as you'll know, regular listeners of the podcast will know that my partner loves Pierce Brosnan romantic comedies. It was even for us, it was it was a stretch too far. But to cat yes, to crowbar this back to British politics, I knew there was a point. Things that aren't the EU are happening. Things that aren't the EU are indeed happening. Um, John McDonnell and the Labour Party had a new economics conference last week, which caused a slight tiff in wonk world because they decided to hold it at very short notice on the same day as Fabian, as Fabian Society Conference. I know what you're thinking. This sounds incredibly petty. Welcome to Wonk World, listeners. Um, so what has tended to happen is is that all of the like left-aligned wonks get together and they basically like have like by what can really only be described as rules of shotgun. Because although you might think, wait, is there really someone who decides they want to go to Progress Annual Conference, Fabian Annual Conference, Labour's Economy Conference, Class Annual Conference? The answer to these questions is yes. Yeah. Yes, there is. And also it makes it much harder to compete with speakers. Uh, so, um, so yeah, but the, both, both that and Fabian Conference were were very good. I, I spoke on a panel about electoral reform, which obviously speaking about electoral reform at Fabian Conference is a bit like... Um, Group therapy? Well, I mean, to be honest, I would say it would be a bit like me, like, you know, coming into a, an office and speaking about how they all deserved a raise. People like, yeah, like, you know, yes, no do. one no one is ever going to shout at you for saying that. Um, so I went, to, this is my, this is turning into like what Stephen and Helen did on their holidays. But last week I went to give a seminar at the Reuters Institute for Journalism in Oxford about media coverage of politics and the different ways in which it is broken, in my opinion. And one of the things that I brought up, which I wanted to throw back to you, is how do we kill Boris in a metaphorical way, I would stress, should Theresa May be listening to this. Um, I mean, Theresa May is listening yeah. to everything. Hey, Theresa, so. how's it going? Uh, nice shoes. Um, but but just about the idea that he his favourability ratings are still very high after what I see as a series of unpleasant interventions and a series of, you know, just... I, 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 I put up on screen the, the difference in the quotes between his his view of the EU in his Churchill book out last year where he talks about the European Union 
re you know uniting europe to, after the second world war and how great a, a project that was with his comments when he said of course people who say that the eu is this great european uniting project are, are wrong it's not it, it didn't do that at all and actually how is anybody holding him to account for that it, it all seems just to bounce off what happens when politicians get into the post gaff sweet spot and then and they can never really be held to account ever again i mean so I don't really understand Boris, which is why I try mostly to refrain from writing analysis of how he's seen in the country a lot. I have never really... But no one else seems to either. I never read pieces on Boris that... In the same way that actually I don't think anybody really understands Trump. Like, there are lots of really interesting competing theses about his popularity. Yeah, I mean, I think my my hunch, which I think is slightly borne out by the... So in case you missed it, I went through the ward-by-ward ward results of the London elections, and I have uh, sent a uh, request to Bristol's council, and they make their results available to me as well in award-by-award award form. Uh, so hopefully there'll be more wonkery coming your way. But the my theory, based on the people I grew up with who voted for Boris, and the reason why I thought Sadiq would defeat Zach, as, as he duly did, is um, that people kind of want in London... Someone who's a king, like who's you know a big figure, a strong who's, man. Yeah, who's got yeah a strong man, uh, who's who um who's kind of going to be an ambassador for for London, and also kind of has that sense of um you know people I think like the fact that Boris is someone who's who's going to be recognised in China, right? And I think that is part of his appeal. I think um I think also the thing is I think Boris has continued success part of these gap, gaps it's not that he's reached the gap point zone it's a bit like um why is austerity successful it's because the people who who argue for it promise that it will hurt and then it does and the fact that it doesn't then the pain is for nothing is kind of irrelevant it's still a, a political promise which is kept and people don't think political promises are kept what does Boris effectively offer he basically goes I'm a bit of a shambles and you'll have a laugh. And then when he is a bit of a shambles and people have a laugh, well, the, the promise of Boris is always kept. I think that idea about the strongman is really interesting, though. I think um, it was going around Twitter, a quote from a, like a 1997... Uh, it was from a, a quote from a piece in the New York Review of Books about somebody predicting that as economic inequality increased and as uh, you know, particularly the white working class in America and the UK were left behind, that you would see the re-emergence of... Uh, strongmen politicians and you would also see a rolling back of the advances that have been made for black and asian citizens and for women and for for gay people and i do think that that is kind of coming right i don't mean to be overly apocalyptic but you look at trump's rise and you think that actually it's not that people will put up with him being a bully it's that actually some people what they want in a leader is they want a bully i mean you said this before about trying you know you can't cut off the national penis mm. actually the idea that leaders have to be strong is kind of seen as very unfashionable, now, particularly strong in this way that's associated with kind of a particular form of masculinity. But that doesn't mean, just because it's unfashionable to say that, doesn't mean that it's stopped being true. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is that um, if you look at the polling and the focus groups, uh, British politics, and indeed European politics in general, is starting to look more American in that the, the left party in, in Britain and in Europe has mostly managed to achieve this thing where it basically has kind of um, middle-class people who are, you know, educated professionals, working in the public sector, work for universities, work for creative industries, concerned about poverty, and 
ethnic minorities of all stripes and ethnicities, and uh, you know, from from the poor right to the upper middle class, who are mostly less likely to vote for the right, and then most of the white working class. And what started to happen is those three groups have all started to go in three slightly different directions. Whereas what the Democrats have had for some time now, and that is now finally starting to bear fruit for them electorally because of demographic change in the states, is women, graduates, ethnic minority voters, um, but not actually as many working class voters as you would expect, given they are notionally the more left-wing party. And what's starting to happen is, you know, up until 1997, women backed the Conservatives at every election. Mm. Since then, women have narrowly backed the Labour Party at every, you know, so by large margins in 97, 2001, 2005, Although even that splits interestingly along age ranges, right? Yeah. So older women are more likely older to women be are more, more conservative, but, um, but younger women are, are really, really much more likely to be Labour. Yeah, and you see this in the polling now, in that uh, women are much more likely to say, oh, you know, like Jeremy Corbyn has the right ideas to look after people, and they're much less likely to care about Trident. Um, and in the in the states, it's really interesting in that primary race between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton that actually older women are more likely to be Clinton voters and younger women are more likely to be Bernie voters. So yeah. you do have a kind of whether or not uh, there was an interesting thing I think that people put forward through that actually as you get further on in your life as as a woman and you get more and more screwed by all the things that uh, you know like pregnancy discrimination or not getting the job because you've had time out to have kids or all those kind of things that you become more and more set you know kind of you you have more more time for Hillary in the compromises that she's made whereas if you're younger and you're still you kind of think well I'm, I'm sure I did at that age that none of those things are going to happen to you that's all sort of been sorted or that you personally are a sort of exceptional and you were you know that that won't happen to you um, but I think those are yeah I think there's a broader interesting electoral trends yeah, what else is happening? Uh, as you'll probably be able to tell us, since we're in something of a news desert, uh, we are very aware that many of you are perhaps slightly less uh, invested in the in-out referendum than I am. Um, but I think there's, it's it's really difficult because actually one of the things I've learned in the last couple of weeks is how much of politics happens as a conversation and you can't have a conversation with only one speaker. So, if you know, people get very upset about oppositional politics, but actually, I mean, I wouldn't dignify it necessarily always by calling it a Socratic dialogue, but the idea that, you know, you put forward kind of an idea, somebody finds some holes in the idea, they come back on it, you know, that there's engagement on both sides. Actually, because that's been missing, I think it's been really difficult. Um, and there are some stories that are just very hard to cover. The Tory election fraud allegations, for example. It's just, I've been talking to broadcasters, it's very hard to get people from other parties to come on the record and talk about that. Now, you know, there are interesting reasons why that might be, right? But it, do, it nonetheless, it means that how do you cover those things? If you don't have a new thing to break, you can't kind of have a discussion about it. You've got no people putting themselves up as talking heads. I, I do think actually that is the more interesting thing, actually, kind of the, the, the big storm cloud on the political horizon for everyone is this election expenses story. Um, as I think I've said on the podcast before, there's a long history of... Uh, national and local spending kind of being slightly blurred of battle buses being declared nationally but but obviously as most of our listeners will know seeing as most people are not in safe seat uh, not in marginal seats you don't see I, a battle yeah, bus I in never a rock seen a solid battle, uh, yeah. uh, no, no, never seen a battle bus in uh, in either tower hamlets or in stoke newington uh, for unsurprising reasons actually no galloway did have a battle bus in but no one was on the battle bus so is oh it... well in 2005 when you know i i've you know, i've seen i've seen peak galloway i've actually seen you know galloway in success you know did actually have a battle bus but the really tricky thing is is no one has ever been taken to court before 
Um, so there is not very much precedent. Um, I mean, so instinctively, you can look at some of the stuff the Tories done and go like, oh, well, that's probably within the spirit of the law. That feels a little bit weird to me, allegedly. Uh, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. However, it's kind of, just as with expenses, where I think that some of that stuff I think most people were kind of fine with in micro, but overall, yeah, so I think some people probably were fine with, yeah, like... You know what you mean? It, it, actually, if you think about what other things that people got upset about now with expenses, well, you can remember Jackie Smith's husband's porn video, yeah. and you remember the duck house, but there was loads and loads of stuff that just washed kind of slight people sort of paying for their wisteria to be taken down and stuff like that you kind of need a sticky obviously outrageous example to to kind of make it work right and actually yeah. small amounts of money being declared in one way rather than another way is fundamentally quite a hard thing to explain why that's not on but i also think this is a good segue to the other thing we should talk about uh, which is englishness and volunteers so one of the the things that it, the Labour leadership has always been very aware with this story is they know that they cannot themselves guarantee that everyone in the Labour leadership has always followed what the because we don't know what the spirit of the we this has yeah, never been never tested, tested in a court, yeah. um, but we all know that you know everyone's got on bottle battle buses and almost everyone's had leaflets from Party HQ and leaflets they've paid for locally. Well, also, and on the also, larger expenses point, Jeremy Corbyn has got a massive advantage by being a London MP within sort of cycling distance of Westminster, right? Yeah. Because I think it's really interesting now that I think more MPs, this is my, uh, yeah, please write in if, if I'm not right about this. I feel like more MPs are taking planes because, um, you know, to get home to Scotland on a plane is, is A, quicker, and B, there's no sort of class distinction in the same way that some people might have got a first-class train to get and done work on the train. Well, you can't do that now. So it's kind of changed how people do stuff. But inevitably, some MPs, people were really excited about the fact that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn claimed £3.89. Well, you know, guess what? If you live within commutable distance on a bike from your constituency, yeah, it's going to be easier than if your constituency is, you know, the Isle of Skye. Yeah, I mean, I, I am... So I'm deeply sceptical about expenses stories, uh, particularly most of the MPs, partly because I think it's always important not to underestimate the fact that a lot... The reason why Guido is so big on this is he doesn't think government can work. He wants people to think government is corrupt and can't deliver things, which is why Well, he's they the other level. side of spiked online, isn't he? Yeah. Which is kind of, we have to tell everyone that everything is decadent in the hope that the, like, the world will then collapse and embrace full revolutionary communism. Yeah. Or so, libertarianism. Who knows which one they're on at the yes, moment. But um but yeah, it is it is exactly that. And that is why they're so obsessed with um yeah, with with with, with MPs and, and their staff and, and all of that kind of thing. I mean like but the other problem is So for him any state spending is too much yeah, state spending, essentially. If, isn't if you are a volunteer, an organization which is dependent on volunteers, as all of the parties are, uh, and particularly, you know, the late the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democrats, they're still all quite old. Of the surge in membership only about a fifth of it in the Labour Party is young, mm-hmm. is under 30. Most of it, and there's this weird bowl curve in the Labour Party membership surge. Very few 40-somethings joining. Awful lot of... Uh, returnees, uh, essentially, returnees driven out by Blair. Yeah, which, when you're doing, when you're getting people to fill forms out, bear in mind a lot of people have got other jobs, or they're getting on a bit... Uh, all of which means that you can't know for certain that every penny you spent in an election has been uh, proper. It's a it is a slightly thorny area, which is why 
everyone in politics is being quite quiet about it. On the subject of volunteers, Labour Party's volunteers have been in the spotlight this week because of a series of linked essays about, and you can't hear me rolling my eyes, but the rest of can. they are being rolled, about Englishness and Labour's English problem. The quote which has got a lot of people unhappy, in, in my view, quite rightly, is this idea that many Labour activists were like middle-class passengers on a Ryanair flight um, what is, visiting... Can you explain to me why it's bad to be a middle-class person who uses Ryanair? Maybe you just don't mind the uncertainty of not knowing what seat you sit in and quite appreciate bargain airfares? I mean, I, I always say that there are, a couple of, there are only a few issues which ever make me feel faintly foreign in this country. One is the way that people in Britain go on and on about dogs. I always feel like a stranger in my own land when I visit my in-laws, and the because of their dogs, they're very welcoming in every other way. And the the, the, the <laughs> very uh, nicely done. The yeah, other the other is uh, this class thing where people get very angry at in both directions. Uh, yeah, but the reason why thing that people, they... everyone, yeah, everyone I'm related to votes Labour is Labour was the only way you can become middle class if you're an ethnic minority. Yeah, like. But like, I also think there's a thing that, um, and actually one of our contributors, Victoria Smith, wrote a really interesting piece about which she talked about this concept of privilege laundering, right? Mm. So people know that being attacked for being privileged is a bad thing. So the way you do that is you point to a group that you are a part of and sort of loudly really denounce them. Mm. And then sort of that, in in a sense, that seemed to kind of then, well, yeah, okay, so yes, I am middle class, but I'm not, a bad, I'm not one of those middle class people that's the problem. Mm. Um, and I think it springs from a sort of left-wing politics that is finds kind of compromise and nuance abhorrent you know they want to be wants to be pure and so the idea that you could say yeah we've got a problem there's too many people like me here is is kind of not something that is is voiceable right you have to try and implicitly say that yes you're part of the group that is the problem but you're not the problem yeah i think that is part of the problem and then i think i mean so so it is it does also feel to me at least like so like so tristram hunt who is not the only author of this series of essays, but it's probably the highest profile. Uh, and uh, John Crudders, who have written a series, uh, an autopsy of Labour's 2015 defeat. It, one of those things where it's like, one, it feels that it's, there's this kind of unwillingness to go, hmm, maybe these various groups which used to vote Labour aren't reconcilable, right? Maybe it is actually just impossible for Labour to get to that 48-odd percent of the vote and it needs to win an election again. I'm not sure if that's true, but, you know, it, you know, it, it feels to me that one of the problems is, and they've decided they don't want to admit that, they basically have got to this point where they go, oh, well, we know that we've lost votes because we're soft on immigration. I mean, one, I think the Labour would then lose votes to people who, who are, are perfectly happy being fairly relaxed about immigration when it needs those votes as well. My but, problem is, right, they won't go out and, and make the case for immigration or the case that I think somebody like Owen Jones makes very eloquently, which is that there are, or the Economist, I think, I've, I've read making this argument as well, you know, that there are economic downsides to immigration, but they are a political choice if class sizes are too large, if people aren't getting speaking English, you know, that's about funding English as a second language courses. All of those things are political decisions, um, as is the fact that, you know, people are finding it hard to find work if they don't have the right skills, you know, that's those speak to all failures of things that happened in, in politics and they are you know, it is possible to mitigate those things also if immigration is so bad why are all of the Labour MPs saying we should tackle immigration campaigning to stay in the EU like yeah, you know, I mean you know, ultimately the thing is like 
But it's, it's a problem of trying to have it both ways, isn't yeah. it? Is that you don't want to come out and throw to defensive immigration because people are going to attack you, but equally well, you don't want to say anything if, you know, against it because you feel that would be racist. So, well, you know, you have to decide if this is an, an issue, you know, which way, which fundamentally how you believe. And people can, you know, more than actually disagreeing with people, people can smell inauthenticity. And I think that the kind of compromises you saw under Ed Miliband, where he tried to sort of triangulate very poorly on this, I find that more off-putting than I do... I mean, I'm obviously, you know, not on the anti-immigration side myself. I'm watching Jeremy Corbyn make a kind of, you know, no-borders argument almost that he genuinely believes. Yeah, I mean, I think things... I mean, and this may, of course, just be wishful thinking on my part because it's also something which I'm comfortable with. But my instinct is, one, I think, you know, under Ed, no one really knew what Labour's immigration policy was except every type of voter thought that they disagreed with it, which is obviously a fairly catastrophic failure. But my my second feeling is, yeah, like, one, the Conservatives managed to win selling this fictitious idea that austerity is good for the economy, etc., 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 because we all sacrifice something and we all something. Well, that's actually true about immigration. So... Yeah, you can so make an exactly the same. Yeah, it'd yes. be painful, but ultimately it brings it brings larger benefits in the end. Well, I think that was a, a fairly soul destroying ramble through things that aren't the EU. So can't maybe live if living is without no, EU. No, I'm sorry. I'm just not that into EU. Yeah, that was uh, Suzanne Evans's copyright to her. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's. Can you you know make someone put a bill forward that's interesting in the next week, Stephen? Get on that. I will try. All right. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman, Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So Westminster, um, a quiet week in Parliament um, as all the action is, is in some ways outside with, uh, with the EU referendum just a, just a few weeks away. And most of the uh, polls and forecasts are pointing to a, to a victory for Remain, but it's obviously having an ever more fractious influence on the Tory party. Um, Ian Duncan Smith branded Osborne Pinocchio in response to the Treasury's uh, second report on the economic consequences of Brexit. And that was a line which An- Angelo Eagle, I think, exploited quite effectively at uh, Prime Minister's Questions, where she was facing Osborne um, with uh, with Cameron away at the G7 in Japan. Right. Um, and uh, how, did, uh, how, how did it go? Last time, uh, it was not a good day in the office for Osborne. He was trounced, basically, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Um, he's uh, he had his best performance yesterday, um, which isn't saying much. It, it, it's quite a low bar, but he'd come well prepared. He had lots of material on uh, labour splits um, to respond to the jibes at, at, at Tory divisions. Uh, he compared the shadow cabinets as prisoners on on day release. Um, he attacked. Labour's um, stance on alleged stance on, on Trident and of course as he said the party wants to scrap Trident lots of shadow cabinet members shook their heads they of course would say that Labour conference last year uh, supported renewal and um, most Labour MPs um, rightly expect Jeremy Corbyn to give them a, a free vote on the issue 
but Osborne's uh, use of that line shows how the Tories hope post-referendum this will be one of the issues that reunifies the party. Um, the Tories might not be able to agree on much in relation to the, the EU, but they can all agree, uh, almost all agree on Trident and agree that um, causing trouble for Labour is, is good fun. Yeah. Um, on the subject of Osborne, uh, this week there was some fairly bad YouGov polling for him showing you not seen as charismatic, not trusted, not perhaps a surprise to many podcast listeners. But what are his chances now, would you say, of, uh, of, of moving from number 11 to number 10? I think they're low. Um, I don't think they're they're non-existent, um, particularly because um, he is obviously uh, David Cameron's uh, anointed favourite, and that means he does have advantages. He does uh, deputise for him at Prime Minister's Questions. Uh, Cameron may well move him to the Foreign Office if that's seen as as, as supporting his chances. Are they? Although he will then be away from the power politics at Westminster, and his instinct is always to be uh, at the centre of that. Uh, but if the economy continues to grow at a, at a reasonable rate, if uh, the votes to remain and that actually settles the issue for the for the near future, he will be a figure of stature. And the, and the, and Tory members, although my instinct is that they'll vote for for a Brexiter and most likely Boris Johnson. If Boris does come unstuck in office, which is eminently possible, uh, George Osborne may end up seeming like the the safe choice in some ways, a natural uh, successor to Cameron. That said, his poll ratings are, are not just bad, but catastrophic. And given that the, the Tories are electing uh, a prime minister rather than just an opposition leader, would they want to go for someone um, who is so unpopular in the country and who will... Uh, soon need to face the general public either in an, an early election, which uh, many MPs think the new Tory leader will opt for, or by um, by 2020. Um, that said, they may again look at look at Labour and Jeremy Corbyn and think, well, uh, any any whoever we elect will uh, will beat Corbyn, and uh, and that's that's their view. Well, on that cheery note, we'll be back next week. And now we're joined by Henry Zeffman for the last time, Henry. This is your valedictory appearance on the New States and Podcast because you are leaving us to go and work at the Times. Um, but we've sent you out with not exactly a bang, well, quite a lot of bangs, actually, yeah, as it turns out. With an apocalypse. Um, by asking you to go and see X-Men Apocalypse. So in descending order of nerdiness about the X-Men universe, at the top of the tree has got to be Stephen. You've watched, you've even watched like the Wolverine films, right? I haven't watched the second Wolverine film okay. because I'm, you know... Fool me once, shame on you, etc., etc. But I have watched all of the X Men films. We've, I've even watched the Rogue Cut, which is the director's cut version of Days of Future Past, which includes Rogue, who is only in one scene of the original theatrical edition. And is it Rogue, as in played by the one by, from True Blood, or are they recast? Rogue? Oh no, played by the one from from True Blood. I actually think the theatrical version is probably superior to the Rogue cut, but I'm glad I've seen both. Okay, whereas I've seen what I classify as a medium number of them. I mean, I think I've seen all the original X Men, X Men Two, X Men Three, and then all of the new ones apart from the Wolverine films because I heard that they were rubbish. Uh, but I, I had an exciting weekend of watching Days of Future Past on Saturday night, and then going to the cinema and watching X Men Apocalypse. So, I, first of all. You so you, had you even watched the comics? Read a comic? No, I'd seen. Anything? I think I'd seen a bit of X Men Three on a ferry uh, <laughs> to Portsmouth once, 
um, on a school trip. And that was, that was, um, I, I remember that there's the opening scene, the guy with the wings and he's like cutting them off or something in yeah. distress. So I remember that and nothing afterwards. Okay. Um, but I had some sort of sort of cultural knowledge of, of X-Men, um, both so what... via some friends and sitting next to Stephen for a few months. Um, <laughs> so what were your big, what things from the X-Men mythology did just totally baffle you? <laughs> I mean, so I, I actually grasped the whole mutants, humans, uh, like fault line running through the universe pretty quickly because that's kind of a very thinly veiled allegory. I mean, that's how I took it at least. You can replace mutants with well, I thought in the, the African American struggle in America, which I gay rights. Okay, gay rights in the late sort of yeah. in the early two thousands. The original Brian Singh one. So Brian Singh has come back to direct this one, but yeah, it did feel very much like it was about kind of don't ask, don't tell, and, and gay rights. I feel like now it's more about immigration actually, and more mm. about kind of the idea of the enemy within maybe about a Muslim immigration into America. It's kind of swung back, swung back around because originally, as you say, they were direct allegories, which is why Magneto uses the phrase by any means necessary. So obviously Magneto is Malcolm X and uh, Xavier is uh, Martin Luther King. Um, although, except obviously they're both white. Um, Oh, okay, so one of them is the one of them is the kind of we need to bring things to the breaking point, and that's when then when we'll get revolution. One more of them is the is the gradualist. I hadn't mm. thought of that. So my interesting theme, political theme that I took out of this last film is that Professor Xavier, all the way through, there has been this dynamic about him controlling people. Um, so he wipes the memories of Moira, the scientist, um, who he'd had a sort of relationship with. Uh, the plot of the kind of previous of, of first class and of the ones that follow that is about Mystique Raven um, sort of wanting to, to break free of him. She, she feels smothered by him. Obviously, Magneto, one of the reasons that he has his special helmet is so that Xavier can't get into his head. Mm. So there is this kind of, so you'll like this, Stephen, there is this kind of, I think, issue of sort of Fabian paternalism mm, and, and being a benevolent dictator and actually is it even if you know best for people and you would do make better decisions for them than they would make for themselves how does it make you innately evil to kind of exercise that power because most of the time Charles Xavier well as even Magneto acknowledges most of the time Xavier is right but is it is but I think it, the film is probably that? my my very amateurish reading of it is that it's kind of ambivalent if not negative on Xavier's uh, control. So, firstly, the kind of the way they finally de- defeat the big purple Poe Dameron guy. Uh, sorry, uh, is by uh, unleashing the powers of this sort of teenage mutant who Xavier has been trying to help control her powers. Um, and actually, with Moira, um, I can't remember the name of the actress. She's she's the the horrible best friend from Bridesmaids. Roseburn. Uh, Roseburn. Uh, then uh, Moira, he eventually sort of recants and gives back their memories and says, I, I, I'm so sorry that I took them from you. Which is definitely worse, by the way, because imagine like having taken them. You can't give them back because, as he notes in a vaguely humorous scene, she has a son. So she's now thinking like, oh, well, I've got a son, but now I'm sort of remembering my old love and like 10 years before. And this but is she's all also confusing. divorced. I think it would be worse. Oh, she was if, divorced, you're right. It would be yeah, worse yeah. if she wasn't divorced. I think then then it becomes more... But he's the kind of nice guy of, of Westchester. I think this is the thing. That, um, yeah, it, he... it reminds me very much of um, Jessica Jones and the, th- the plot around Kilgrave there. This idea that actually romance in its kind of... Hollywood form is a lot about taking a woman who doesn't like you and kind of bullying her until she eventually gives in and kind mm. of uh, admits that she likes it, which is sort of that slightly unpleasant overtone is also there with, with Xavier. Yeah. Are you going um, to def- defend him? Defend J- little bold James McAvoy? I mean, I think the thing is, I, I think this film viewed in a vacuum, which I should say is very good and I think has uh, suffered 
uh, unfair mauling from... The, I thought it was from, much better than Days of Future Past, yeah. just in technical terms. I thought it was much better than uh, Captain America as well, and that was a movie universe that I did actually know something about when I went to watch it. Um, yeah. I thought it's it's light... It, it, it managed to have incredibly high stakes without taking itself too seriously in the slightest. So I thought the best sort of equivalent, uh, best example of that was the scene where... There's a, there's a scene where the big the school is basically blown up by big evil purple guy, and uh, they're saved by Quicksilver, Quicksilver yeah. to the tune of "Sweet Dreams" by Eurythmics. Um, because it's happening in the eighties. Because it's happening in the eighties, uh, and it's just really it's really well done. It's a really nice sort of immediate contrast between the world is ending with a sort of like weird ancient Egyptian kind of theme and actually being fun yeah i agree with you the tone is very, is very well kind of it doesn't it doesn't lapse into taking itself far too seriously some of the problems i have sometimes with i'm not as much of a fan of tony stark as my husband who gets dragged along to see all these things with me i find him just a bit smug mm-hmm. and a bit uh you know that's smarmy and i think that's what you can if you're really powerful you could that can kind of really you can just come across as quite superior, and 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 this one doesn't. This one always undercuts. That. I feel like in the in the Marvel movies, um, and the thing that both did do very well is is uh, lightening moments of uh, moments after big fight scenes or moments of seriousness with a, a joke. But in the Marvel scenes, it's always a ha ha ha, aren't we clever joke? Uh, you know, ha ha ha, isn't Joss Whedon witty? Uh, whereas here, it was maybe slightly more slapsticky, but not in a not in a terrible way, but in actually quite a. Uh, One of the things I find really thought. interesting is how much more they found for Jess, uh, Jennifer Lawrence to do, right? Just because now that she's become a really big movie star. Two things have clearly happened. One is they've decided to put Mystique far more into the films. And second of all, Jennifer Lawrence has had a word and gone, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I'm kind of a big deal, so I'm not <laughs> going to sit on a bicycle seat for eight hours and be painted blue. So can I just can I just be me most of the time? And they've just kind of had to had to do that. I mean, I actually wasn't... Con- I, 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 I thought Fassbender acted pretty well, but I, I wasn't convinced by... His story arc. I liked the so probably the most audacious scene. I thought it really worked was when they went back to Auschwitz um, with Sloane Sabbath uh, from the newsroom wearing a, a okay. like a leotard. That's one bit there. I'm going to say that that was a clunking fail. Yeah. So uh, Psylocke, as it is, which is Olivia Munn, right, who was That's on right. the Daily Show and other things. She, everyone else's costumes are now very much leather flight skits. They're very grown up. You know, I remember the comics when Wolverine was in bright ye- yellow and blue spandex. Everyone else's comics are super. She looks like Britney performing her yeah. Las Vegas yeah. stage show. She's in a spandex leotard. And as I believe I said in the editorial meeting this week, one of the first pieces of advice I was given in journalism was never wear anything you'd be embarrassed to wear to court or to a funeral on your day as a journalist. Mm. Similarly, as a superhero, never turn up in a superhero costume you'd be embarrassed to wear to Auschwitz. <laughs> because she's standing there in a spandex leotard and it just, it's just, it's, I can't, it's not even offensive, it's just so clankingly yeah. wrong. But, but I thought, with the exception of that, which I agree with you totally, I thought that was a well done arc until the point at which Magneto then goes nice again. I think if, if you, if you're willing to set up quite effectively, I think the circumstances in which he would go evil, go so rogue. So his, his uh, wife and daughter are killed with a single arrow while hugging each other and blah, 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 you know, it's all, and his parents were killed at a camp. So it's all obviously very sad. And they set that up as a good excuse for him to be a big old villain. And then, he sees, and bearing in mind that I don't actually know much about the past relationship between him and Jennifer Lawrence's character, but then she just turns up, says a few nice words, and he's like, "Oh God, no!" It turns out when when he when I helped him end the world, we were actually ending the world, uh, and goes nice again. 
which I found a little bit clunky. Yeah, and, yeah. We, and again, it's, it helps that you have got an actor who can kind of deliver that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he. he, he... But, I know, but, so but I agree with you. Actor. I think it's a really interesting. That one of the things that's particularly interesting about the X Men is it is so particularly rooted in a period, which is why they're now having to make ones that are in the eighties because Magneto's origin story is so connected with the Holocaust. Which is, mm. you know, I think for the time, I'd be really interested to see how people felt about that when the comics were first out. That's quite which was an, presumably quite soon that, after. That is, yeah, yeah, it was but, an astonishing thing to, think to so, do. Yeah, yeah, they're from the. 60s and 70s, so it was, yeah, fairly um, brave at the time. Um, but one of the things I really like is that it also, it, it, it isn't afraid to be political. So Grant Morrison's got this theory about Superman, about the way that Superman evolves, it reflects the kind of political feelings of the time. So first of all, he's sort of fighting kind of town planners, basically. It's that kind of American small town <laughs> thing where he's taking on corrupt Superman bureaucracy. Superman v. Robert Moses. Yeah, then he, then he kind of turns into an environmentalist. You know, and then and then he's fighting now. Now it's Lex Luthor is the kind of the big villain. So now he's actually he's a he's a kind of you know he's an Occupy Krypton kind of guy, um, and 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 I think that that's why people will. I'm sure people will listen to this thinking, God, they're talking about superhero films again. But they are they are myth. They are, they are like they do. They are supposed to be about the big themes. On which note, I think that's enough big themes. But Henry, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully you'll return even when you're ensconced in the lap of uh, Rupert Murdoch's luxury. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> and now, welcome to You Ask Us, a section in which you ask us a question and we try to answer it. Um, this week, uh, interesting one. Uh, what do we think the long-term prospects for growth of the Women's Equality Party are? I think the Women's Equality Party is a really interesting f- political phenomenon. I'll first off say the thing I like about them, which is the fact that they are engaging with a democratic process, right? There is, there are, I, I'm a bit down on the idea of sort of collectivism type stuff about the idea that if you just get sort of 50,000 people to agree with your petition, you've changed something. Well, no, they're doing a harder thing like that. You know, they're going out, they're building branches, they're building a, a movement from the ground up. That said, I think, um, you know, they got 4% in the mayoral election, so under the 5% they needed to get representation in the assembly. I think they're going to struggle. They maybe will have success in places where there is there are various types of proportional system. But this has always been the thing: is that the feminist party in Sweden, for example, um, you know, is bene- has benefited from proportional representation. It, uh, the problem again I have with them is they I'm not sure they've quite come to terms with the idea of first past the post. So there was talk about we'll stand candidates at the election. Oh, but only against people who don't sign up to our pledge of, of agreeing to all our ideals. Well, you don't stand against one person. You don't even stand against the sitting MP. You stand against absolutely everybody in that in that uh, in that constituency. So what happens if the Labour MP signs it? Maybe the Lib Dem challenger does, but the Conservative doesn't. Do you stand in that constituency or not? I'm kind of confused on that. And the thing that I've I've raised privately with a few members and, and got different answers is, you know, what's what do you, what can you do as a political party that you can't do as a, a pressure group or a you know a sort of lobbying council in the same way that you know the Fawcett Society, for example, is a good example of of a of a, an equal rights pressure group. And they say, well, actually, you know, because we're a political party, we kind of get invited to the debates. We can try and kind of get our way into sort of hustings. But ultimately, you are kind of not parasitical is a is a sort of an offensive word, I guess. But look at how UKIP 
has had its success by, well, that's by peeling people away from the mainstream of the Conservative Party, by outflanking it, by taking its voters. I know it's now taking Labour voters too. So realistically, you know, is are the Women's Equalities Party's aims achieved by taking essentially left-wing voters? I mean, I know they say that they're non-partisan, but I can't believe you're going to get many UKIP voters or even kind of stalwart Tory voters whose primary concern is going to be feminism and equality. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm, I have a sub-question, actually. One is, uh, the Feminist Party in Sweden, are they explicitly left-wing, explicitly right-wing, or are they also on this kind of non-partisan... As I understand it, they are actually left-wing. Uh, and I think the decision to be non-partisan was, was, was interesting. I think it helped them in the sense of who they could kind of get in. But if you look at the you know the leading lights, I don't think there's any question that Sandy Toxvig... Catherine Mayer, Sophie Walker, Suzanne Moore, you know, there. I know they have Emma Barnett from The Telegraph, uh, I think, on on one of their sort of membership, more than any sort of their version of the NEC. But, you know, it's not Melanie Phillips and it's not, um, you know, equivalent people from, from the right, I guess. I'm trying to think of right-wing female mm-hmm. celebrities and coming up with, not, you know, it's not Julia Hartley Brewer. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not. So I, I sort of feel like the, the jig is up there. That said, I, they have taken a couple of positions which I think are, are interesting. So, for example, they are on the, um, they are not on the decriminalisation side there for prostitution. They are for Nordic model, which is a, you know, is, which is an interesting and very controversial stance to have taken. And I'm pleased that they've taken it for for one reason, which is really that I, I, my worry is that anything that becomes about equality just turns into a sort of empowerment mush. Right, that you have to, you know, you actually don't have to. There has to be an enemy if you're a political party. There have to be people or systems that you are fighting against. And had they refused to to come up with an answer on that one way or the other, I think it would have been a bad sign that they really wanted just to be a kind of general kumbaya, everybody, you know, happy. Let's draw hands around the rainbow kind of thing. So, so I think that's been successful. They have, you know, they have raised the profile of some issues. For example, there was a violence against women hustings in the London mayoral election so having that kind of pressure on politicians to answer those kind of questions I think is really important yeah I mean so I I know I'm becoming a Brexit obsessive yeah I'm actually starting to lose my hair you as well think they stuff. should um it, be it really really irritates me when they don't have a position on on Brexit uh, I mean I think it would be lunacy for a women's equality party to say it was pro leaving the EU but that would at least exactly, I think, with with the sex work thing, it's just like I almost don't care the what opinion, yeah, whether whether or not I agree with them on it. I'm just relieved that they realised they needed to have a firm opinion on it. But if they decided that somehow it was in the interest of women in Britain to leave the EU uh, and yeah have all of those workers' rights and maternity rights peeled away, I wouldn't understand it. But I would at least feel that it was a serious political party. But I just feel the second you're going, no, oh, no, we just don't think that there are, we don't think there's a women's angle to, to whether or not we're part of the EU. It's just like, uh, really, is this not just a hobby for you? My broader question is about whether or not actually a women's party kind of makes sense. In that, are there enough things that women share as women that you can fill, you can fill a whole slate of political, um, uh, you know, questions on it, right? Mm. 
And I think the other interesting thing, particularly is, if you're not going to, particularly if you're going to take the very modern angle and say that biology has got nothing to do with being a woman, because then actually, well, can you campaign on maternity discrimination? Yeah. Can you campaign on pregnancy discrimination? Can you campaign on abortion? Because some of those issues don't affect all women. I think you end up in a very, you know, tricky. Like, what what are the things that all women of all races and all classes, uh, you know, actually affect everybody equally? Well, there aren't really th- that many. The, and the interesting thing is, I mean. They did prove, I mean, actually, the London election in general was quite a useful test in the impotence of media in general. Zach Goldsmith was crushed despite effectively having, I mean, you know, Stalin got worse coverage out of Pravda than uh, Zach Goldsmith got out of the Evening Standard at times. Um, And uh, the Women's Equality Party were fawned over by basically every broadsheet. I think they got a couple of good write-ups in the mirror as well, and they finished well below the threshold. I think they actually are very, very similar to the SDP in lots of ways. A lot of lovely support, a lot of, lot of coverage, but they don't actually have a a base based on class or interest. And I think if you don't have that, your destiny is always going to be five, ten, eight percent of the votes. I guess that would be my. But then again, point. so actually, is that is five to eight percent of the votes such a bad thing? Given that it gets you a seat on the table, it gets you a you know a, a podium at the hustings, it gets your issues on the agenda, it it forces them to be taken seriously. I think it's particularly as we move to a much more fragmented political landscape, I don't have a problem with the existence of that. And fundamentally, I think the other thing is, I'm sure you'll agree with me, is I don't have a problem with people, even if they're doing things, if they're engaging in democratic politics in a way that I don't think is perhaps going to be particularly successful. I'm still pleased that they're doing it. Oh, yeah. Rather than signing another bloody petition. Yeah, I think it's just like, like, you know, like, well done. Like they're, They're doing all of the, like, miserable things you know like they they had to negotiate with our block sentry phone someone actually came and knocked on knocked on my door um but you know the green the green party are never probably never well under first past the post will never hold more than a couple of seats right and they'll never get more than a a certain percentage particularly now jeremy corbyn's labor has hoofed a lot of their voters but the existence of them is still important and i think that's probably that would be my nice moment to end on been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis with stephen bush our producer is india book and our music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us on itunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.